This is a Federal News Network podcast. The largest federal employee union is pressing the Biden administration to follow through on a pledge to expand collective bargaining for transportation security officers. The American Federation of Government Employees says TSA is trying to scuttle that process. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday has the latest. And what is AFGE specifically asking the administration to do, Justin? Yeah, they're appealing directly to Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, asking him to direct TSA Administrator Administrator Pekoski to expand collective bargaining without any further delay. And you remember back in June of last year, Mayorkas ordered TSA to expand collective bargaining rights for TSOs, negotiate an agreement for bringing appeals before the Merit Systems Protection Board, and developing a plan to pay screeners in line with the general schedule. Low pay and workplace rights have been a big issue in terms of retaining TSOs. But AFGE says that Pekoski is holding up the expansion of collective bargaining rights unnecessarily. I spoke with Chris Blessing. He's staff counsel for AFGE headquarters and the Council 100, the council that oversees TSOs. We need Secretary Mayorkas to go back to Administrator Pekoski and remind him of what he told him to do back June which was expand collective bargaining rights. That's ready to go. It's ready to be signed. It's just not happening. And a few years back, I guess, Justin, there has there were pretty bad working conditions cited for TSA officers, TSOs. Has there been progress since then? Definitely. They've they've had some some small pay increases over the last few years. And last June's order from Mayorkas was really seen as an important bellwether in bringing TSOs in line with the rest of the federal workforce, as he directed. And in September, there was the first tangible outcome of that order when TSA and the MSPB struck an agreement on the appeals process. And, and that allows TSOs to appeal certain firings, demotions, and long-term suspensions before the board, which is, of course, not operating right now, but that's another issue. And AFGE concedes that increasing pay to the general schedule will require Congress approving an increase to TSA's budget. But according to Blessing, Bukowski has told AFGE representatives that TSA will also require additional funding from Congress before it moves forward on collective bargaining as well. AFGE disputes that fact. It's also highly irregular to bargain over benefits and pay in the federal sector. But let's assume then that they're asking for higher pay and Pekoski will go to the well for greater pay. Does that mean this is all coming down to a cost dispute? Yeah, that's really what what this dispute is all about. AFGE points to a September information memo from Pekoski's office that kind of outlines what TSA would need to increase compensation and bargaining rights for TSOs. And in that paper, TSA writes that they would need 958 full-time equivalent positions to cover the expanded collective bargaining and appeals process. That's at a cost of $170 million a year. And it's almost 500 positions beyond what was included in the FY22 budget, according to that paper. And AFGE says those are inflated cost estimates that are being used to justify inaction. In a January 20th letter, AFGE President Everett Kelly wrote to Mayorkas saying that this was an attempt to scuttle Title V pay and collective bargaining rights for TSOs. AFGE is also arguing that Pekoski could simply issue a collective bargaining determination now 
and begin the process before receiving appropriations to implement the agreement. Here's Chris Blessing again. In order to start this process, I think the realistic number that TSA needs is zero. We would be negotiating a collective bargaining agreement under a Title V framework for the first time. That's not going to happen overnight. Even if TSA thinks it's going to take a couple years to get this money, we should certainly be able to negotiate that contract and have it ready to go for ratification and implementation. And he should bring lots of water bottles because like the Veterans Affairs Department have been negotiating off and on for almost a dozen years on a new contract going back to 2011. So this could take a lot longer than a couple of years. Then they're basically arguing not only just about salary, but also about staffing with all those hundreds of extra positions they say are needed. Exactly. DHS is saying that they need additional resources to implement the new labor framework, a a DHS official speaking on background to me said that TSA needs funding and tools to make the expanded program effective and successful, but they say that they are still committed to, of course, raising pay and expanded collective bargaining for TSOs. Is Pekoski it then? What happens next? Well, DHS, Mayorkas and, and, and Pekoski seem to be in, in lockstep right now, according to the the statement that I got from the department. They are both still working to achieve those goals that Mayorkas laid out in June. Democrats in Congress are also looking to give TSO's general schedule pay and expanded collective bargaining rights. House Homeland Security Chairman Benny Thompson, Democrat from Mississippi, is sponsoring the Rights for the TSA Workforce Act. Companion bill has also been introduced in the Senate, and that would raise pay and bargaining rights for TSO's. And in a statement, Thompson said that he's hoping the president will include money in his fiscal year 2023 budget request to transition to Title V pay and collective bargaining rights for TSOs. But Blessing says the delays and uncertainty are out of step with the Biden administration's pledge to be the most labor friendly in history. And he believes TSA management may actually be hesitant to expand collective bargaining because it would cede some level of control over the workforce. I think the real explanation here is that TSA has enjoyed incredible discretion within the labor framework for the last 20 years since TSA was created really unlike no other agency, they've been able to do whatever they want. And I get it. If I were them, I wouldn't want to give that up either. And that is Chris Blessing of AFGE. And I guess now we just wait and see who makes the next move. I guess so. It's There's a little bit of tension here that wasn't there maybe last June. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure, thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent 
And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on 
what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview and it it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Hi, it's Kristen. Did you know that not doing things is easier than doing them? There's a lot of things to do, especially this time of year. But when you don't do things, there's more time to do things. Does that make sense? What I mean is when you use Shipt to get everything from gifts to groceries delivered same day, you have more time for the things you want to do. To not do things so that you can do other things, visit shipped.com slash holiday. That's S-H-I-P-T dot com slash holiday. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.